Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, about 600 B.C., a man named Draco drew up a set of written laws for the Greek city of Athens. And it was a very harsh set of laws that he drew up. The punishment for many of the offenses, even trivial, small offenses, the punishment was death. And it is from this that we get the English word draconian, when something is harsh, disproportionately, unreasonably harsh. It is draconian. And that's something which, as you go throughout history, you go around the world, that's something which is not uncommon. The more that government is afraid of losing its power, the more it becomes tyrannical, the more unreasonable the laws become. And we can see that happen in a small way in the classroom or in the family. When the teacher, when parents begin to lose control, the rules multiply and the punishments get harsher and harsher. In England, in the 18th century, over 200 crimes were capital crimes. That means that you would die if you committed that crime. And that included things like stealing an amount over $50. Can you imagine? Stealing over $50, you can be sentenced to death. Or poaching, illegal hunting, could be sentenced, you could be sentenced to death for that. Now, in our text that's before us this morning, the Lord Jesus refers to a provision in the Old Testament law to protect against draconian laws, unreasonable and disproportionate punishments. Now, of course, the Old Testament law was drawn up a long time before Draco was ever born, but the principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, what we call the, the lax, the lex talionis, the, the law of retali retaliation, is a limiting factor that God put into the law to prevent against abusive punishments. What the principle is, is this. The punishment must fit the crime. The punishment must be proportionate to the crime. And it was put in place so that punishment would not be too much nor too little. It was put in place to prevent and to limit personal Vengeance. You know how we sinners react. If somebody hurts us, if somebody does something bad to us, we want to go full nuclear on them and teach them a lesson. You knocked out my tooth, I will kill you. That's the, that's the response of the flesh of, of fallen man. And so the Lord put into the law way back in the Old Testament already, for the civil magistrate provisions so that the punishment would not be too harsh nor too light, but just proportionate. Now, the Pharisees had taken this. They had taken this principle of law for the magistrate, for the courts, for the judges, limiting the punishment to be proportionate to the crime, and they took this and they turned it into something that it wasn't supposed to be. They took it and they turned it into a personal principle of vengeance. You did something to me, I'm going to do the same to you. You punched me, I'm going to punch you. You damaged my property, I'm going to damage your property. You know how childish. You think of how little children react, right? Children sometimes begin these little hitting wars and they 
one hits the other and the other one hits them back. And then you have to be the last one to hit, right? And then the parents say, stop it now, stop hitting each other. And then there's always one that does one last hit, right? Because we want to get the other one back for what they did to us. Now, this is not just childish, but this is the work of the flesh, of fallen, corrupt human nature, and how petty it is that we sinners, we like to keep track of, of every slight and every debt. And, and it, it can be, that can be seen in so many areas of life. You think about people that, that look at life this way. Well, we've invited that family over four times, and they've only invited us one time. We're keeping track. We don't want to give too much without receiving the same back. Those people never call me, so why should I call them? They've never reached out to me. Why should I reach out to them? And so with these cramped, cramped lives, we, in a petty way, have our little black books keeping track of every slight and every debt that people owe us. Now, as we come to our text of this morning, we have to ask ourselves, what are we looking for in the gospel this morning? What are we looking for here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42? Are we looking for another set of checkboxes? Are we looking for what are the rules? When do I have to let him hit me again? What about if he hits me a third time? If he hits me a third time, can I punch his lights out? What if someone forces me to go three miles or four miles? What if somebody wants to borrow money and I think they're going to use it for something that's not good? What are the rules? How many dollars do I have to give? Give me the rules. That's what we often do when we come to the Sermon on the Mount. We want a whole new set of New Testament regulations so we can check the boxes as New Testament Pharisees. Well, we know by now, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, that that is not at all what the Lord Jesus intends to give us. He gives us gospel. He gives us the overflowing and overwhelmingly abundant righteousness that can only be found in Christ. And he shows us what that looks like. When he pours his righteousness into us and upon us, he shows us what that looks like in a transformed life. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. What is Jesus saying? He's saying this. He's saying, this is not who you are, child of God. Citizens of the kingdom, don't do this. You see, the default response to being insulted and inconvenienced and importuned for the fallen sinner for the one who is in the flesh, the default response is anger and irritation and revenge and vengeance to, because our self is offended and our self is on the throne of our hearts in our little kingdoms of our lives. The Lord Jesus instructs us that when he has come to us and given us new hearts, when he has drawn us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, then we are different, very different, radically different. The default response of the citizen of the kingdom 
is that gentle strength of meekness and the mercy of God which fills us and overflows to those around us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus instructs us, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, we have to be careful that we understand this correctly in the light of the whole scriptures. Never can we take an instruction of the scripture and apply it in such a way that it undoes or knocks down other instructions of the scripture. The, The Bible always holds together and everything must be understood in the light of the entire scripture. And if you go through the Bible, you see, for instance, in James chapter 4, verse 7, the same verb of our text here in verse 39, resist. That same verb is there in James chapter 4, verse 7, where the apostle instructs us, James instructs us, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we are called to resist the devil. We are called to resist evil. And the word resist means to to stand firm against, to oppose, to be an enemy of. And then you remember uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, the apostle has reminded us that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. And then he says to us, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And that is the same verb to resist, to stand firm against, to oppose, to be in in war with, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So, So what is the Christian called to resist? The Christian is called to resist all the powers of darkness, and the devil himself, and all his minions, and all his hosts, his evil hosts. We are called to fight against and oppose evil in every way. But our fight is not against flesh and blood. The person, the human being who hurts us is not our enemy. They are flesh and blood. Our fight is not with them. They are slaves of sin. They are doing the bidding of their master, but our battle is not with them. And that is what the Lord Jesus is instructing us here. When, it's, when he says, do not resist the one who is evil, that we do not set ourselves up as battling that person. On the contrary, what does the apostle teach us in Romans chapter 12, verse 17? He says this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so, as the slaves of Satan attack us and revile us and even hurt us and send all kinds of evil our way, we overcome that not by responding in kind, but we overcome that 
with good. Now, there are some Christians who look at these words of the Lord Jesus, do not resist, and they conclude that this means that you may never defend yourself or others or your property. And so there are Christians that say, if I'm in my house and some bad people break in and they start beating up my wife and my children and, and dishonoring my wife, I, I will not stop them because the Lord Jesus tells me not to resist. And this is a classic case of taking one instruction of the Lord and applying it in a way which goes totally against the totality of Scripture. The Scripture is very, very clear about our duties to love one another, to defend one another's uh, health and life, and we certainly cannot just sit there and watch while somebody is being hurt. If you look, we just, I just cited Romans chapter 12 about not repaying evil for evil, overcoming evil with good, not, not avenging ourselves. But right after Romans chapter 12 come Romans, comes Romans chapter 13. And in Romans 12, the Lord says, don't avenge yourselves. Then in Romans 13, he says, the, the, the government is a minister of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we ought not to avenge ourselves, but God has ordained ministers, the state, the magistrate, to avenge the wrongs that are done against us. And there is every, um, it, is, it is good in every way to appeal to the ministers of God, the civil magistrate, for justice. It is right and it is good for Christians to do so. And we have examples of that in the New Testament itself, of Paul himself appealing to the authorities for justice. It is right and good for the Christian to, as a citizen, contribute to and support the maintaining of law and order. And so sometimes, if someone is hurting a lot of people, if someone is in a crowded area and they're firing wildly and, and, and killing people, then the Christian is not called to just look on, but the Christian is called by God as a citizen to help maintain law and order. If there are no police around and you can take that person out in some way and stop them from what they're doing, you're called to do that. The scriptures make very clear the principles of justice and the principle of the preservation of life are not set aside by Christ's command here to not resist the one who is evil. And I want to make very clear here to those who may be being hurt right now by someone. Maybe someone is hurting you or abusing you, somebody in a position of authority or someone in a position of trust. What the Lord Jesus is saying to you this morning is not that you ought to simply accept that. He's not telling you not to resist wickedness and abuse. On the contrary, it is right and it is good to seek safety and protection from abuse and to seek justice. And that is what you need to do if you are being hurt or abused. And what Christ is showing us in our text is the heart attitude of those who have been radically transformed by his righteousness into citizens of the kingdom of God. Look, look how he speaks. He says, I say to you, if anyone slaps you, if anyone sues you, if anyone forces you, if anyone begs 
from you. What Jesus is driving home to us is my reaction, my heart, my attitude when I am wronged. And he gives four examples of citizens of the kingdom who are full of the overflowing righteousness of Christ and who are in different situations where the self is insulted, the self is inconvenienced, the self is importuned. That means somebody's bothering you and, and harassing you and wanting something from you. And, and the reaction for the Christian, the reaction for the citizen of the kingdom is not one of self. It is not, you have offended me. You have offended most, my most high majesty. You have done this to me. And I'm going to make sure you regret it because you don't mess with me. That's the reaction of the flesh. That is the reaction of fallen man. The reaction of the citizen of the kingdom is one of gentle meekness and mercy. The death of self. Because the Christian is one who has taken up his cross, who has denied himself, and who follows the Lord Jesus. And so let's look at these different situations that the Lord Jesus brings up. He speaks about being slapped on the right cheek. Now that would be this cheek here. And if you think about slapping somebody on the right cheek when you're right-handed, that's going to be a backhanded slap. And there's a reason why the Lord Jesus mentions the right cheek, because if you slap someone, that's an insult. If you walk up to a, a man in public and slap him in front of his peers or in front of his family, that's a great insult. If you backhand him, even more. Because it's, an, it's a gesture of contempt. Now, there are two different reactions you could have here. The reaction of the flesh or the reaction of the spirit. The reaction of the kingdom of darkness or the reaction of the kingdom of light. And already back in the Old Testament, the Lord has made clear the difference. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 16. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. There's a difference in how believers and unbelievers react to insult. Then there's the question of somebody suing you at law and, and taking your tunic, your, 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 uh, your garment that fits closest to your body. The Lord Jesus says, well, let him have your cloak as well. Now, the cloak was not just used as a, as a kind of a coat, but it was also used to, to sleep in at night. It was a covering. And according to the Old Testament law, if you, if you got someone's cloak, you were supposed to give it back to them every night so that they could sleep in it. It was kind of like their blanket as well as being a, an article of clothing. And Jesus says, well, let them take that, even though, even though they're supposed to give it back by law every night, just let them go with it. What is the attitude he's teaching us? It's the attitude that Paul speaks of to the Corinthians when they're dragging each other to law before the, uh, the unbelieving judges. He says, look, why not rather be wronged? Why are you going before uh, the, the, the unbelieving judges fighting each other in front of the world, why not rather be wronged rather than fight for yourself? And then there's the question of going two miles. This is a very specific and technical term that is here in our text. It's a, it's a, a legal demand that by law you could be pressed into service for the government. For instance, if a Roman soldier 
told you to carry his gear for a mile, you were commanded by law to do that. And a, a, an example in our times would be if you were drafted into the army or if you were called and summoned to serve on a jury. You must obey by law, no matter how inconvenient it is. And what Jesus is teaching us is that when these things happen, we don't do these things kicking and screaming and hollering, complaining. But as citizens of the kingdom of God, we do them in peace. We are literally willing to go the extra mile. And then there's the final one, do not refuse those who ask you for a a loan who would borrow from you. And we, we look at that and we think, well, come on. Are you serious, Lord? If, if I'm on the street in downtown and somebody who is visibly addicted to alcohol or drugs, they say, can I have some money? And I know they're just going to buy more alcohol and drugs. Are you telling me that I have to give? Or if there's someone in the church, my brother, my sister, who spends their money very unwisely and they squander it and they're always in debt, and they're asking me for a loan for their next month's payment for their Lamborghini that they can't afford, am I supposed to give that to them instead of buy groceries? Well, obviously, that's not what the Lord Jesus is telling us. The point is this, and and we, we read Luke. Luke was giving this same teaching from a bit of a different angle. The point is this, what are we looking for? What is important to us? Are we only giving when we see a benefit for me? Am I only loaning when I can make some money, when I can get advantage? Is my concern me, I, and myself? Or is my concern loving God and loving my neighbor? What does the scripture say? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And you remember remember what we sang in Psalm 37. The wicked borrow, but without repaying. As for the just, they give with open hand. That's the difference between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of heaven. Now, in all cases... And all these different examples that the Lord Jesus gives. The person that's bothering me or inconveniencing me or hurting me in some way, that person is not my enemy. And my reaction as a citizen of the kingdom is ought not to be focused on myself. Now we look at this and we think to ourselves, well, how in the world can I be like this? How can I be just so giving instead of reacting with the anger of the flesh to react with the mercy of someone who knows the new heart and the righteousness that we have from God? And that's, that's really the solution, isn't it? The only way we can be like this is if we have new hearts. The only way we can be like this is if we have the righteousness of Christ. The only way we can live like this is if we can say, together with the apostle, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When I am filled with the love of God, of which the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is not resentful. What does that 
translate to in another way? Love does not keep a record of wrongs. Love does not have that little black book of what I've done for other people and what they've done to me and what they deserve to get back. Because it's not about me. It's about him. You see, kingdom citizens have perspective on life. We know God's mercy in Christ, that his mercy is great, that his mercy is tender, that his mercy is abundant. We know it. And we know where we would be if God would deal with us according to our transgressions. Oh, God, if you were a God who would keep a record of iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? We know if God would punish me eye for eye, tooth for tooth, insult for insult, if God would give me what I deserve, the way I treat him, I'm dead. I'm eternally lost. I have no hope. And so the Christian has an eternal perspective. We who are poor in spirit, we who mourn because of our sin, we who know the greatness of our iniquity, when we're insulted, well, we think to ourselves, if only you knew, you're saying all these nasty things about me, but I'm actually a lot worse than you think outside of Christ. You see, the Christian has perspective, the perspective of Psalm 103 that we're about to sing, that life is like grass, that it's quick to fade and perish. And so, for, and so therefore, the, the, the Christian holds on to the things of this world very lightly because we have treasures beyond compare that are so much more precious than the things of this world. We have God's mercy and God's grace and God's steadfast love. We have the treasures of heaven for all eternity. We are heirs of the world, of the universe. We are kings and queens and princes and princesses who will rule and reign with Christ over everything for all time. And so when some sinner comes to us and imposes on my time and imposes on my convenience and takes my stuff and asks me to share things with him, that are of this world, that are temporal, that are going to run out, that are going to burn up one day anyway. Well, then we look at that situation, we say, you know what, I'm not the victim here. I'm not the one to feel sorry for. But my heart goes out to you. And I feel the compassion of Christ for you, you miserable slave of sin. For all the insulting and hurting and abusing and stealing and importuning that you're doing to me, I feel sorry for you. You're the one that needs compassion. You're the one that needs mercy. And I don't want to give you what you deserve. I don't want to treat you the way you deserve to be treated because I have not been treated that way. I have not been given what I deserve because I know the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And that has changed everything. It's changed my outlook on the world and, and on goods and on time and on, on, on everything. I know Christ and I want you to know him too. I want you to know his mercy. And so the way I'm reacting to you is astonishing for the unbeliever. But I pray that you would see Christ in my attitude 
in my words, in my reaction. Brothers and sisters, this is the way of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way of he who is our righteousness. He was mocked. He was humiliated. He was insulted. He was struck. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. By force of law, he was stripped of his clothing, stripped of his tunic, stripped of his cloak. He was exposed naked on the cross. At any moment in his suffering, he could have stood on his rights. He could have demanded satisfaction. He could have called down immediate judgment from God. But instead, he did the opposite. He shielded his tormentors from the burning wrath of God at that moment. Can you imagine? There was the Father in heaven. There was his son being tormented and tortured on the cross and people mocking and reviling and insulting the Lord of glory. And can you imagine the, the power of the righteous anger and judgment of God ready to be unleashed upon that crowd of ungrateful, wicked, vile sinners? And Jesus says, Father, don't. Don't fall upon them in your anger. But forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. This, brothers and sisters, is the death of self. The self which was enthroned in our hearts at the fall. Jesus didn't just go an extra mile. Jesus went all the way to the end of the road. Jesus went to hell itself. Why did he do that? He did it because he loves you. He did it for you. He did it for me. He did it to make us, his enemies, into his friends. So that when we, sinners, cry out from the depth and beg for mercy, Jesus can say, you know, it cost me everything I have and everything I am. But I will give you righteousness and life and salvation. What you're asking me for cost me dearly. It pressed out of me the bloody sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane. It cost me the torments of hell. It cost me infinite pain. It cost me everything. And what I gained from that great price that I paid, I give to you freely. I give you my love, I give you my grace, I give you my forgiveness, I give you my righteousness, I give you all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, I give you all the treasures of heaven and life eternal, take them. You don't have to pay me for them, you can't. You don't have to give them back, they are yours to keep. This is what I have done for you. This is who I am, and this is now how you are. And this is now how you shall live. Amen.